So Stephen Mayle, I am so excited to have you on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. You have such a diverse background and uh, in terms of you know your journey and the deals you do now. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear on your episode of DealQuest. We're going to hear about my evolution from a bond trader to a global macro hedge fund manager to an investor in uh, venture capital. And we don't talk about my time as a real estate investor. Oh, <laughs> Next <great>. episode. <laughs> Next episode. There we go. I love it. Yeah, Stephen has had so many experiences as a dealmaker. And, and one of the things I love really about is his approach and his values, just the way he does business. And he was uh, generous enough to come on and give his wisdom. So thank you, Stephen. I look forward to I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy your episode. Thank you, Corey. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Stephen Mayle is the founder and managing partner of Mail Venture Partners. He has a clear divide in his career, a bond trader and hedge fund manager in London who, quote unquote, retired at age 39 for a change of life in Florida after the birth of his two daughters. He now invests in companies as a venture capitalist. He's been a hedge fund, micro hedge fund manager in the past. There's a lot of experience that Stephen brings to deal making, and I am so happy to have him on the DealQuest podcast. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Corey. I'm delighted to be on the show. I actually have three daughters. If I only had two, I probably wouldn't have retired. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it's the third <laughs> one that put it over the edge, huh? <laughs> yeah, th- three and three and a half years. It was a bit traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Stephen, let me ask you a question. You know, I always open the podcast. I'm always curious as, you know, when people, when you were growing up as a little boy, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because my guess is at that age, it probably wasn't, you know, a trader, hedge fund manager, VC, uh, you know, but tell me if I'm wrong. You're not wrong. My passion is I run Florida's largest youth soccer club. So people often think that I really aspired to be a soccer player when I was a kid. The truth is that I actually aspired to be a boxer. My Dad was the Royal Air Force uh, light middleweight champion. Uh-huh. And my mom was a judo instructor. So I think if I had to choose, I'd say I really wanted to be a boxer. Thankfully, that was not my journey. <laughs> yeah, it's a much uh, much safer career. And what was your first deal of any type? Whether that you know was something as a kid or as a you know an adult, whatever you remember, a deal of any type that you did. What was the first one you can remember? Well, I started playing poker at age twelve, <laughs> and by okay. age thirteen, I was playing with eighteen-year-olds. But I think I started my first job when I was 15, and I started my first business at age 17. Oh, we have a lot in common because I played poker. In fact, one summer when I was a teenager, I made enough money playing poker to as much spending cash as I needed. I didn't need a job. <laughs> and right. I also I started my first business in my teens, so I love it. I'm glad I didn't play poker against you then. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. So I want to go backwards in a second, but just 
give folks a little bit about what you're focusing on now, you know, what type of investments, what type of companies, you know, and, and what you're doing now. And then I want to go back, uh, you know, to your history after that and sort of talk about how you got to uh, where, you, where you are now. So I've evolved in the last few years, probably the last 10 years, into uh, a lot of sports and a lot of uh, digital media companies. So I find the intersection of the two fascinating. I, I enjoy it. When I'm looking for deals, I look to see how I can help companies. So where I can open doors and then obviously cross-network, you were talking about the beauty of deal-making. It's about helping companies scale. So when I can get companies piggybacking off each other, then I know I'm on a good path. Love it. And what stage of, of companies do you generally come in in terms of your investments? I like early stage. I look at investing as a pyramid. So I have the most fun at the top of the pyramid, and those are early stage companies. Love it. What have you found in, in terms of your investing? Because you know, obviously, you know, the earlier stage, the more potential reward, but also the more risk. What have you found any patterns or you know, things you've learned? I'm sure you've had investments that have done very well and some not so much. Uh, any super successful investor I know has had ones that, you know, that often more that have not been home runs than the ones that have been. What have you learned along the way about, you know, what makes a company successful and, and you know, how maybe you've sort of tuned your uh, investment making decision in terms of how you choose companies? I really look at the individuals. Often I'll choose the individuals because in the very early stage companies, you're looking for people who can solve problems, who they're honest, they have integrity, but they also have resilience because these early stage companies, their journey is a rocky one. There's always problems and very rarely does the company start out with an idea and then finish with the same idea. It's that evolution. So you're looking for people that you can back who have those problem-solving skills. I love it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, the word pivot has become so popular, right? I joke that pivot means what we said we were going to do didn't work. We're trying, you know, now we got to try something else. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a nice way to say that, right? <laughs> right, right. Great. So uh, we'll come back to the present, but I want to take people back because you've had an interesting road, you know, to becoming an investor. You know, you didn't start out, you know, doing that. So you were a trader and then, you know, around some hedge funds. So, to, you know, give us a little bit about your, your background and, you know, some of the fun stories and then also what you learned along the way that has helped you in terms of what you're doing now. Sure. So I was a child of the Big Bang, which in the UK, the Big Bang was the term given to uh, suddenly there was a deregulation of the financial markets. And banks were allowed to buy brokers. It was a Margaret Thatcher innovation. And suddenly they realized they were short of traders, short of people. So there was a, a massive recruitment drive. I started when I was um, 21 years old. And then I spent a period of time in the back office. And then I was scheduled to come out and begin my career as a trainee bond trader. Unfortunately, the week that I started, it was the, the famous Black Monday crash of 1987. Oh. Oh, sure. So in a way, that shaped my career because it was such an unusual experience. And there was so much emotion around the dealing room at that time. That if I track my career, you can always say that uh, during the negative moments when there would be, a, you know, as there was a Black Monday of 1987, I think there was a Black Wednesday, a dark gray Thursday, dark blue Friday. There was lots of things happening in my 20-year career. And I always seemed to thrive in those kind of cutthroat emotional times when people were jumping out of windows. <laughs> so, so it really was that starting that week just imprinted on me and, and really shaped my career. 
Wow. What do you think it is about you? Because, you know, you're right. Obviously, you know, a time like uh, Black Monday comes and if we have any uh, younger listeners who don't know what that was, you know, 1987, I, I remember I was, I graduated law school in 1985. So I was like, you know, a young associate. And it was the big, at that time, by far the biggest stock market drop in one day. And uh, they, you know, came, became known as Black Monday. In times like that, and, you know, we've had so many examples, right? You know, the global financial crisis, you know, in more recent times, et cetera, you know, where there are always people who, you know, who panic. There are people who uh, shut down. And then it's also true that some of the big, you know, most money is made, you know, in those challenging times by people who um, can keep their head on straight and come through it. What do you think it is about you that has thrived in that, during those times? I think I have a humility. I don't become too attached. I'm quite comfortable saying I was wrong <laughs> or the circumstances have changed and reversing my positions. It's happened at various times throughout my career where I've just, something has happened and I've been very fast to react. And just that ability to completely reverse positions and not to have the emotional attachment that most people have was a clear strength of mine and very helpful throughout my career. Yeah, you know, in my negotiating book, Authentic Negotiating, it's the, my fundamental framework is clarity, detachment, and equilibrium. And, the, and that detachment is what we're talking about here. It's the ability, you know, not to get attached to anything, not to get emotional, you know, to be able to make those clear-minded decisions is crucial. I've got kids now who are now of an age where they're interviewing for jobs. But when I used to interview people, and my career started when I was young, and I was recruiting people at age 23, 24, 30 years ago, the first question I always asked and the most important question to me when I recruited somebody was, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you and how did you handle it? I know it's a popular question now, but 30 years ago, it wasn't. I was looking for and people was, I was looking for people who had lost money and had then been able to come back. Everybody, lots of people would come in and say, oh, you know, I've made money for four years every single year. I looked for the quality of the bounce back because I know eventually people are going to suffer a down period. People are going to have a negative set of returns. And it's how it impacts them was, I think, for sustainability and longevity, it was, it's overcoming the, the down period. And I think, you know, fast forward 30 years, that's been a strong life lesson for me and something that I look for even in private companies now. Yeah, that resilience, right? You know, because you're right. I mean, it's not it's not all going to be. It's easy to look great when things are going well. I remember I uh, I was at a very high end uh, seminar one time many years ago, uh, and I wish I could remember who it was so I can credit it. But they had a panel of three billionaires talking about their journeys, and of course, all of them had, had struggles and challenges and whatever. And somebody asked uh, one of the guys, uh, "You built this big thing, you know? You went bankrupt, and now you know you built something bigger than than before." what was your mistake? And his answer was, I mistook a bull market for brilliance. (laughs) (laughs) Spot on. (laughs) And and that's why he's a billionaire. (laughs) Right. Right. Because, you know, and I always love that line, right? You know, because obviously when, you know, going up, everybody looks like a genius, right? You know, and he, yeah, so um, I love it. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit. So you would, okay, you're trading. And then um, I know at some point you got into micro hedge, hedge fund uh, management. So, you know, take us a little bit through the career and, uh, and some of the journey there. Um, so I started in, in uh, 87 trading and within a week, I realized that I just took to it immediately. I loved, I always loved what I did. It was a, the dream job for me. Initially, I started as a market maker. So going back to being a, do- a boxer in those days, a market maker, you'd have a set. I was a bond trader who was a market maker. 
and you'd have a, a set of bonds that you would trade and you would ask one market maker a price, they'd ask you back. And it always felt a bit like being a boxer. You would throw a punch, then they would throw a punch, you duck, and then you'd throw a punch back. That was a great couple of years. But then I evolved into uh, proprietary trading. And also, it was the launch of the euro in 1991. And by that time, I'd proven myself. And I worked for Société Générale, which is one of the top 10 sure. largest banks in the world, number one in France. They had always traded euros out of Paris, but they decided that they would transfer euro trading to London. And I was fortunate at that time to be given the, the job of head trader. I had a fantastic year. And at the end of the year, or my team had a fantastic year, at the end of the year, the Bank of France wanted Société Générale to transfer euro trading back to Paris. On the other hand, Bank of England wanted the euro trading to remain in London. So we had this conflict between the two banks, the Société Générale was strategically important. London was trying to build up its financial centre. Paris didn't want to lose its largest French bank. So I don't have great terrific language skills. Um, I was uncomfortable about going to Paris. So they made an agreement that when I went to Paris, everybody would speak to me in English. <laughs> so I, was, I, <laughs> I agreed to go. I was in an old French dealing room. I would have meetings with the French treasury every week. And when we'd have traders meetings in the, in the morning, there'd be 20 French people, myself, five could speak English, five could barely speak English, and, you know, and the rest couldn't speak any English, but they felt it was time to become international. And I benefited tremendously from that experience. And also with the launch of the Euro, it was high profile. So in a bank of 100,000 people, I was fortunate to have higher profile and I would get taken out every, every week by one of the board members from the bank, they wanted to find out what was happening in the markets. And as a young man, it was a tremendous experience. So right. those were special times for me. I then came back to London. I ended up working for BNP Paribas, which is Société Générale's main competitor. But I was now back in London and I had lots of different experiences. I can tell you that uh, if you remember the long-term capital crisis, sure. I don't know if you, if you remember that one, when Genius failed. So I had, uh, so the Nobel Prize winning guys that ran long-term capital, they had positions of billions of dollars in the Danish and Swedish mortgage-backed bond market. And I had similar positions, but in Danish and Swedish government bonds. And it was a crisis that nearly brought down the financial system. But the Federal Reserve got together and got a number of banks to bail out long-term capital. And it was the first time I'd ever seen where... The market dried up. You used to be able to trade hundreds of millions of dollars on a 10 cent spread, but you could only trade 10 million on one point spread. So the panic in the markets is the first time the markets ever closed. And during that time, this is when it comes down to uh, uh, spotting opportunity and, and trading carefully. During that time, there's a Japanese pension fund who was desperate to sell half a billion of these bonds. The market was trading in a 10 million spread only. And in fact, it closed. And when they when they came to sell these five hundred million bonds, nobody would buy them because the market the market was shut. Uh, everybody was panicking. But I figured that everything has a price. As a deal maker, everything has a price. Yeah. So I gave them a very low price. I figured what the floor was, and then went somewhere below the floor. But I was the only person that would buy them, and they came back. They went around the market. They came back, and they sold them to me. And I was very lucky. I made so much money on that one trade that it covered all my losses for the, uh, for the positions that I'd held going into that day. Wow. So let me ask you a question, because obviously, you know, 
trading and investing in companies are very different, right? Talent in terms of train, you know, timing, in terms of uh, analysis. However, I'm sure there there were some things you learned during your trading days that you apply now. So, what do you apply now? And then, you know, what are the real differences between being a trader and being a, uh, you know, an, an investor in company? I would say that I'd never aspired to make the most money. What I aspired with life was to have an interesting journey. So when I look back, it makes sense that I would evolve and change and do lots of different things because the world's a great place. I want to see the world. I want to meet interesting people. I want to have terrific experiences. The only thing I never want to do is bungee jumping. <laughs> that <would> be, yeah. <laughs> but everything else, I want to go out and experience it. So I had a great time as a trader. I loved it. As I became a global macro hedge fund manager, I would put on positions of longer duration. And then just for the hell of it during the day, I would just trade in and out of things because I enjoyed the deals. I enjoyed the transactions. I enjoyed spotting the, the opportunities. So as a hedge fund manager, it was, significantly more sl- it was significantly slower than being a bond trader. And then investing in private companies is really the slowdown again. So maybe it's, exactly. it's, as I became more gray, I became older, I became slower. <laughs> <laughs> I do less trades now <laughs> and they take longer. And uh, that's probably true. <laughs> so I think for one thing, you have to have self-confidence. If you don't believe in yourself, then who else is going to believe in yourself? So on the one hand, I look for, I look for people, I look for companies people who have self-confidence, but also humility. And I really look at the character of the individuals. I don't believe that's, that's just about investing. I think that's a great thing for life when you're looking at friends. You want to surround yourself with good people. So surround yourself with good friends and surround yourself with great people when you're looking to invest. Yeah, no question. And um, do you play, um, I know you make some introductions, things like that. Do you- you generally take board seats. Uh, you know what? What kind of role, in addition to providing money, do you usually provide in these companies you invest in? I like advising. I like opening doors. Upon reflection, because my career started when I was young and I was a high flyer in my early twenties, a lot of the people that I knew went on to do great things. So I have a terrific network of people who are friends and we discuss things and, and it opens doors and I like it when it's mutually beneficial. I also enjoy the give back. I think giving is, is really important. I think that when you're generous, it leads to connections and in many ways is more satisfying than making money. So I do, I work with Endeavor, which is the number one organization for creating high impact entrepreneurs. I volunteer my time as a selection panelist, as a global mentor. I was appointed a Scottish business ambassador by the first minister, the Scottish prime minister. Again, it's the give back, it's helping. And then I sneak it in right at the beginning, which is my passion for running Florida's largest youth soccer club, which was not Florida's largest youth soccer club when I started, but I love giving kids grit. So it all ties in. Ah, that's great. That's great. I love that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. 
right. What was the, the worst deal? You don't have to say name of a company or anything, but what was the biggest mistake you made in, uh, in terms of an investment and what you learned from it? Okay. I'm going to go back to my trading days. When you look at investments, when you look at trades, if you're smart, you can always see the downside. You can always see. I never saw, a, I never took a position that was 100 to zero. It was always a 60-40 decision or a 70-30. But I was comfortable with that because I knew in the long term that I would make it, I would get more right than I would get it wrong. And I got used to making mistakes. It's a terrible thing to say. I got used to making mistakes, but I knew I'd get it back the following month and that worked well. And if I think about my private companies, the evolution, I can't really think, I've not really had too many bad ones. I've had conflicts, you know, where there's been battles, but I've really not had too many bad ones, but I've had, I'm comfortable making mistakes. It's the nature of the game, but it's the confidence to get back into the ring. We're going to go back to boxing again. It's the confidence to get back into the ring and not to let it impact you. So when you've had battles, uh, you know, those battles with the founders, with other investors, you know, because that's always interesting, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, a lot of companies who raise money, you know, there's obviously great benefits to it, but then you, you know, you often see situations where the investor or sometimes see situations where the investor and the founder's interests uh, diverge, where, you know, you even see founders that are taken out of their company. So again, without having to say any names, uh, what kind of battles have you run into and let's come up there? Right. So I would say I'm always supportive of the people I invest in. I have never had a battle with a CEO or, or somebody that started the company. Yeah. And there have been times when I felt like it's not the right person, but I will support that person and help that person become as good as they can be. I'm not looking for those kinds of battles. I, I like you, to create a supportive environment. Totally get it. What situations do the battles come in? At different times. I guess maybe battles when companies are, are having issues when they're in negotiations with a takeover or things aren't going that well, that kind of battle. But it's more that I'm alongside the CEO, not fighting him, but trying to help him fight his way out of a sticky situation. Got it. That totally makes sense. One of the things that uh, you and I briefly uh, talked about before we got on air was the concept of deals in general to accelerate growth, to help scale. And you know, you mentioned to me that it's one of the factors you look like you look at in terms of investing in companies, you know, is whether there's the possibility for them to grow through, you know, through deal-driven growth. So talk to me a little bit more about, about that and what you think the opportunities are for deals and, and sort of how you evaluate whether a company is uh, is the kind of company that can grow that way. Right. So I like relying on my experts. So as I say, I've built up you know, tremendous connections and, and many of whom technology companies that I have um, invested in, I often walk in and I'll speak to the tech people and I'll say, if you're looking for help with tech, I am the wrong person. My kids call me the world's best at technology and the world's worst. So I make it very clear. I like sexy new companies. I like new technologies. I'm trying to always think, I, you know, I ran a global macro hedge fund. I'm always trying to think, I'm always thinking strategically and and I'm doing it today. I'm looking at two or three different companies, and I can see that one of them fits in with an Israeli video tracking company that I've invested in. And I think this can help. And if I invest in this second company, then I can help pull them together and get them working together on complementary products. So I'm also quite involved in cybersecurity. Uh, I have sort of interesting military contacts. I work with some Israeli companies. So I work with the general who created famous cybersecurity unit of the Israeli Defense Forces. So cybersecurity is all-encompassing, and that 
gets me into different companies as well and a diversification. Love it. Love it. One of the things I'm always interested in, in exploring is, you know, the concept of who is a deal maker and what characteristics you have and why some people seem naturally better at it than others and whether people can obviously learn skills, but there's, you know, some folks who are more innate at it. So what in your mind makes somebody a great deal maker? So strength of character, empathy, resilience. For me personally, you're looking for you look for self-confidence. I mentioned that before, a team builder. You're looking for somebody when you're investing in these startups, you need people who've got the big picture and uh, who have the vision and then can inspire others. So it requires a certain type of personality. I'm also against that. I'm, I'm aware that people who spin a good story do not necessarily run great companies. <laughs> so you, you're really looking to identify talented people, support them, you know, open up your network, which obviously in, in my day, I think I've raised $1.3 billion with my hedge funds. So I'm, I'm comfortable with the, I don't actually enjoy raising money, but I'm comfortable raising it. And it's that growth mindset. So it goes back to what we were talking about, where the perseverance, embracing challenges and making smart decisions. Great. And in terms of like typical structures of your investments, uh, you said early stage. So I don't know how early you're talking about. I mean, are you are you coming in at, um, you know, at, at a Series A or at an angel, uh, you know, convertible debt? Are you doing preferred equity? I, what are you doing generally? All of the above. You just nailed it. I, I, I do, I've done them all. <laughs> And it really, uh, it depends on the nature of the company. I'm brave enough to go in very early. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, Video Sites, which is uh, an Israeli technology company where, for tracking videos. And I came in, I think I was their first outside investor. Now they're doing major deals you know, across the large sports leagues and movie companies and they're going to advertising. I was the first outside investor. So that was exciting. Great. And then some of them you've come in, uh, you'll come in as part of a like Series A round where someone else is leading it as well. Yeah. But I really, for me, it's that ability to connect the companies. Every company I invest in, when I think about it now, every company I invest in, I look at it and I go, how can I help them? And if I can help them, I'll invest. And if I can't help them, I won't invest. So uh, as they say in the business, you know, you're not going to be dumb money. You want to bring a strategic benefit along with the money. Right, right. Uh, but I'm also quite easygoing in the sense of, and I had this conversation investing in a company, or I've just invested uh, last week in a company. I guess I better not mention the name, but you know, they said, you know, we appreciate your advice and we, we want to speak to you, you know, uh, every couple of weeks. You know, I'm going to, on top of your investment, I'm going to give you some benefits. And I said, I'm not going to negotiate. So whatever you give me, I'll appreciate, I'll be grateful for. But when you come to me and you make an offer, just know I'm, I'm not going to negotiate. I don't want to negotiate. That's not my style. So I like to make it clear that, and it was the same when I was a trader. I, I don't need to, I don't need to screw everybody out of the last time. I'm happy if people make money and I want to make money too, but I don't have to screw everybody of everything. I'm quite happy just to be fair. Yeah. And listen, that's what builds long-term relationships. That's what, you know, creates longevity. And, you know, more success and happiness and fulfillment in the long term. I mean, I people get a re- reputation. I mean, it's not that big of a world, you know. Um, right. You know, I say that all the time. I mean, you know, uh, when I talk, when I do these negotiating trainings, I talk about people. Some people have the misperception that the, the best negotiators are the tough guys who try to squeeze every penny out of, you know, and get the best deal they can for themselves. And I always say, you know, there's a few things. Number one, that only works, quote unquote, 
and it only works in the short term if you have leverage. The problem with a negotiator like that is if you don't have the leverage, you can't do that. And number two, you know, most business negotiations are uh, either the start or the continuation of a, of a relationship. And right. if we somebody up front, trust me, it's not going to work, you know, over time. People are going to be looking to get that money back or they're going to be looking to get away from you the minute they can or it just doesn't make sense. Right. And as I said, it's not that interesting. I don't inspire to be the wealthiest person in the world. I'm fortunate I've had a great life. You know, I've had fun along the way. I've had terrific experiences and, you know, want to provide for my family. I don't need to die with a pot of gold at the bottom of my bed. (laughs) Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. All right. So before we uh, start to wrap this up, any last thoughts on on deal making or investing or, you know, things that, you know, if there's people out there who are either considering, you know, becoming investors or are, are looking for to raise capital, any tips that come to mind? Yeah. Networking is extremely important. And I mentioned about the idea of being generous. I think when you're the importance of generosity, it, it leads to connections. And when you're just giving great things happen huh? and it's really more satis- it's more satisfying than anything. And over time, a number of these people go on to do great things and you would laugh if you saw some of the people that I'm connected to. And it's just you know, 25 years ago, they weren't famous and, and they, right. they, they weren't much, but they were just good people. And then good people go on to do great things and you're lifelong friends. Love it. If people want to find out more about you, um, what's the best place for them to go? I usually hide. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm actually not very, I'm not active on social media. I'm really relatively low key, but I, I am on LinkedIn and I am happy to help. I enjoy the give back. So okay. if anybody well, want, wants to help, I'm here. Yeah, I am well aware that people who invest, you know, get hit up with a lot of uh, <laughs> right. whatever. So I'm not totally get it. The last question that I always ask on the podcast, Steve, is, uh, you know, my highest value in life is freedom. And to me, mm-hmm. that, you know, freedom from oppression for all people uh, to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I run my own business because I want to be able to, you know, create a vision and pursue it and not have anybody telling me, you know, all the clients. But what does freedom mean, mean to you and how does it affect your business in life? That's a great question. So I would say that when I was younger, I would look at freedom as being, you know, power and the ability to make money, right? But as I got older, I realized that actually freedom is the ability to influence others, to influence individuals in a meaningful way. That's the freedom. That's freedom to me, is the ability to uh, help. I enjoy working with younger people. I enjoy working with entrepreneurs. I I help with the homeless at the the World Cup. So I think freedom to me is the ability to um, really influence others. I love it. I so uh, appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your commitment to, you know, impact and the things that you do, uh, you know, whether it's with the, with the soccer league or, you know, other, you know, just how you handle your, uh, the, the companies that you invest in and your commitment to generosity, that uh, those values are really so much aligned with mine. So I really appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you, Cora. I really appreciate you having me and it's been a, a pleasure and I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing 
and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.